Let's take our Bibles and go to 2 Kings chapter 17. 2 Kings chapter 17. Glad you're here and glad you've tuned in. And while you're turning there, I gave uh, Brother Tony some of my peppers. He loves to eat hot, hot jalapeno peppers. I gave him some Serranos, and I said, if you'll share those with Rick and Brandon, and y'all will be crying when I'm teaching, it'll mean a lot to me that we move you to tears. So if it takes peppers to do that, well, I'll bring peppers for everybody. Yeah. All right, Second Kings chapter 17. And let's reread verses 1 through 5. In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, began Hoshea, the son of Eli, to reign in Samaria over Israel nine years. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, but not as the kings of Israel that were before him. Against him came up Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, and Hoshea became his servant and gave him presents. And the king of Assyria found conspiracy in Hoshea, for he had sent messengers to So, king of Egypt, and brought no presents to the king of Assyria, as he had done year by year. Therefore the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. Then the king of Assyria came up throughout all the land and went up to Samaria and besieged it three years. And we're going to spend some time on that word besieged. What did the heresy of paying protection money to Assyria and becoming a serious servant gain Hosea? It got him a trip to prison, and it made his capital city a place of entrapment, a place of confinement. In fact, the word besieged means confined or bound up. And here's a great lesson for us to learn. When Hosea paid protection money to the Assyrians, he thought it would grant him freedom and protection. And what it actually gained him was confinement and being bound up. What he meant for freedom resulted in restriction. And this provides us a suitable place to explore what happens when people seek to be free from the Christian life. When they want to be free from the so-called chains of God's word. Have you ever heard somebody say that about the Christian life? Why you people are just chained down. You're, you're restricted. You can't do anything. You can't have any fun. They had not been around the people in this church, have they? We're about the most fun-loving people there are. But we do so because of what Christ has done for us, not as its substitute. And so these people want to do their own thing. And they don't want to be tied down by some religious rules. So we're going to look at two sides of this predicament by asking two questions. And here's the first one. And this could be a question anyone asks, whether the person is a believer or an unbeliever. If I obey God's word, will it confine or restrict me? 
If I obey God's word, will it confine or restrict me? That's the question. And Deuteronomy chapter 11 has a lot of the answers we're looking for. And in verse 1, Moses, by the inspiration of God, told the children of Israel this, Therefore thou shalt love the Lord thy God, and keep his charge and his statutes and his judgments and his commandments always. So the, to the children of Israel, God commanded them to always obey his word. Now that's where people who are rebellious say, well, now see, that's something I can't do. I'm not going to be held down by any set of laws. I bet they don't think that about the process of respiration, do they? Where you have to inhale and exhale all the time in order to live, every, every day. And if you say, well, I'm going to suspend my inhaling and exhaling, then you pass out or you die. And so they don't believe that way about everything, just about God's law. And that's the thing that gets most people. They either want to disobey God's word all way, or they want to obey it much of the time, or even most of the time, except when they don't want to. But what follows in the 11th chapter of Deuteronomy is the answer to the question, if I obey God's will, will it confine or restrict me? And one of those answers is found in the first part of verse 8. That's Deuteronomy 11, verse 8, and then put the little letter A to let you know we're looking at the first part of the verse. Therefore shall ye keep all the commandments which I command you this day, that ye may be strong. All right, there's one of our answers right there. What does obeying God's commandment all the time get me? Does it confine or restrict me? Well, one thing we see right here is that it makes you strong, that you may be strong. Obeying God's word will make you strong, which in this text that I read you means that you'll be strengthened or you will prevail. And so we learn that obeying God's word does not confine or restrict you when it comes to strength. Because if it did, obeying his word would make you weak rather than strong. I know of a strength coach who says that physical strength is the most important thing in life. And based upon what he writes, I take it that he is not a Christian, although he's a very good strength coach. And to keep it very basic here, strength training involves three things, stress, recovery, and adaptation. So you lift a certain amount of weight, and then you recover from that by eating and getting uh, enough sleep and all of that. And then your body adapts to that stress so that when you do it again, you'll be a little bit stronger next time. That's the theory and it works. So if you start with lifting nothing but an empty barbell and you get enough sleep and enough nutrition, you will get stronger. It works every time. 
However, that principle only works for so long, doesn't it? Because we are bound by our own genetic limitations. We get older, and our bodies don't have the same ability to build muscle or to retain muscle that they once did. And we can continue to lift weights, rest, and eat right. But at some point, we go from building strength to trying to just maintain strength. Or, when we hit the other side of that hill, we're trying to prevent the rapid loss of strength. And then finally, the stress, recovery, adaptation principle no longer makes us strong because death is the ultimate end of that process. Do you see the limitation? Now, take what you just learned there and compare it to this. Obedience to God's Word not only makes you stronger, but it never fails to make you stronger. Even in the sunset years of your life, even when you're on your deathbed, Obedience to God's word will never fail to make you stronger, not ever. Ask Sister Dorothy over there in the nursing home who loves God's word and it makes her stronger. She'll tell you, this is what holds me up right here as she has that Bible and some of those pictures that she's uh, that people have taken. She's got a Bible in that picture. That Bible's not just for that picture. That woman reads and has read and will continue to read that Bible until she can't read it anymore. And then I'll bet you somebody will read it to her because it makes her stronger. You see, the, the unbeliever depends upon the ways of man to make himself stronger. And I'm all for people getting physically stronger for many reasons, quality of life being one of those. But striving for physical strength as a substitute for the strength gained by obedience to God's word is a fool's errand. Because that person who depends on gaining physical strength is soon going to be disappointed, isn't he? The first time he gets hurt, maybe at a young age and he can't lift anymore. Or as he gets older and frail and sickly and has depended on being stronger... And now he's weak, and he has not God's word to turn to. The Apostle Paul told us what kind of strength we should strive for, the most important kind. In Ephesians chapter 6, he wrote this in verse 10. It's Ephesians 6 and verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And then going down to verse 13 through 18, I'll read you all of those verses. This is still in Ephesians chapter 6. Paul tells us how to do that, how to be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. He said, Wherefore take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. So what do you need to withstand in the evil day? You need strength, don't you? And having done all to stand, stand therefore having your loins girt about with truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace 
Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. Now, foolish King Hosea in our text would have probably said something like this. Be strong in the power of the king of Assyria, whose armor will surely shield Israel from her adversaries. But he was dead wrong, wasn't he? He depended on the strength of a man when he should have depended on the strength of the Lord. Now, another answer to our question that we asked earlier, if I obey God's word, will it confine me or restrict me? is found in the second part of Deuteronomy 11 and verse 8. I'll read the whole verse again. Therefore shall ye keep all the commandments which I command you this day, that ye may be strong, we covered that, and go in and possess the land whither ye go to possess it. So not only does, God, does obedience to God's word make you strong, but it also opens the door for you to possess what God has given you. Israel possessed the land because God gave it to them by right. He said, I've already made this land ready. But he required their obedience to his commandments before they could possess the land. And we know that because even though he had promised them this land that was flowing with milk and honey... There was a generation of, of the children of Israel who wandered around in the desert for 40 years. Now that was, by various accounts, about a 10-day journey from where they crossed the Red Sea to the Promised Land. So it shouldn't have taken them but about 10, 12 days to get there, right? Had they obeyed the Lord. He had given them the promised land, but they did not go in and possess it because they would not obey him. They were stiff-necked. They were rebellious. And other than Joshua and Caleb, he killed off that whole generation, including Moses and Aaron, in the wilderness. So the second answer to our question is that obedience to God's word doesn't restrict your possessions but rather it opens up the gate that you may possess your possessions. It doesn't limit what you're going to get. It opens the gate for you to get what God's got you. How's that for a little East Texas translation? And for Israel, the possession was literally a physical land, a ge geographical land. Now this is where carnal man gets off track. And it happens in religious circles. When false teachers tell people that their lack of faith or their lack of obedience to God's word is why they're not rich, rich, rich. Or why they're still sick from a disease. They take a truth and then they twist it for their gain. And yes, as we saw last week, obedience to God's word, to his financial principles will keep you from poverty when those principles are allowed to work. And yes, it is also true that many illnesses and injuries 
could be avoided by obedience to God's word. But remember, sin is what brings about death. So we're all going to die. Nobody is going to obey God's word so well that they never die, right? So you have to watch how you apply that. But sin is what brings about death. And that sin entered into the world because man did not obey God's word. Our bodies are going to die. And even those who are caught up in the rapture will leave their mortal bodies just like we do when we die. They're going to leave theirs here, even though they don't see physical death, so that they can receive their new glorified bodies. But the false preacher will twist this truth about sickness, about financial ruin. He'll twist this truth for his own gain. And once a charlatan like that gets people believing his premise, then it's easy for him to get their money. All they have to do, all these false preachers have to do to folks who believe, well, if I'll just have enough faith, if I'll just obey whatever this preacher says God's word is, then I'll be rich. I'll have checks coming to my mailbox, and this cancer I have will suddenly be gone, or this leg that's shorter than the other will suddenly grow and everything will equal out. You know people will believe that sort of thing. And I've seen that. God told, this uh, charlatan will tell them, God told me to tell you to send $1,000. And then he will make you rich. And then he will heal you. And those people are so convinced that this false preacher would never lie because he's a man of God. So they believe they're obeying God's word when they send their money in. Do you know what they have failed to do? Examine the Bible for themselves. Look at the whole counsel of God rather than a snippet of the scriptures that a man has twisted for his own gain. And so those people send their money in and the days and the weeks roll on and they're still not rich. Their illness is still there, and maybe it's even gotten worse. So they call the false preacher, or they call one of his staff members and say, I'm still poor, I'm still sick, and getting worse. And I sent that money in, and that preacher promised that I'd be better, that I'd have riches. And so the poor people are told, well... It's because your faith isn't strong enough. They turn it around and blame it back on that vulnerable soul. And so the person sends another seed offering, they call it, hoping it will prove how strong their faith is. And maybe it's strong enough to have the prayer answered. What a vicious cycle that is. Can you imagine the stress and anxiety people put themselves through? Because that's what they do. They put themselves through it at the hands of a wolf such as these false preachers. Years ago, the prayer of Jabez gained a lot of popularity with people who wanted God to make them wealthy. How many of you all remember that? You've probably read the prayer of Jabez, but Boy, people were saying, pray the prayer of Jabez. Folks who had no interest in the Bible 
but suddenly I remember at work people saying, hey, if you, do you know about the prayer of Jabez? I say, yeah, sure do. And it's in the Bible. And I went and read it to be familiar with it. Well, that prayer is found in 1 Chronicles chapter 4 and verse 10. 1 Chronicles 4 and verse 10, where it says, And Jabez called on the God of Israel, saying, Oh, that thou wouldest bless me indeed, and enlarge my coast, and that thine hand might be with me, and that thou wouldest keep me from evil, that it may not grieve me. And God granted him that which he requested. Now that's it. So people would pray this prayer, and they were hoping that God would answer it just like he answered the prayer for Jabez. And they made some assumptions that are wrong. First of all, they assumed that blessing and enlarging their coast was all financial. That it was about things, possessions. They assumed God would give them more possessions if he were to answer that prayer. But if you listen to what the Bible said about Jabez before he prayed this prayer in the first part of verse 9 in that chapter, it said, and Jabez was more honorable than his brethren. <laughs> I guarantee you that when the Bible tells us a man is honorable, that means that he is pleasing to God. And honorable Jabez was not looking at God as a prosperity God, but as the only one who could answer this wonderful prayer. And it is wonderful, and it pleased God. God answered it. What grieved Jabez? Was it not being rich, not having a bunch of land? No, it was evil that grieved him. He said so in his prayer. He said that thine hand might be with me, that thou wouldst keep me from evil, that it may not grieve me. Evil is what grieved Jabez. And if evil had grieved King Hosea, he would not have sought to save his coast, his borders, or even enlarge them by paying protection money to the Assyrians to keep them at bay. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul wrote about the gifts of healing, gifts of prophecy, the offices of the church where God gave some apostles and teachers and evangelists and so forth. But in that chapter, he said, the greatest gift is not among these. All these things that I just named, these are not the greatest gift. And at the very, in the very last verse of chapter 12, he wrote, But covet earnestly the best gifts, and yet show I unto you a more excellent way. Now that's verse 31, 1 Corinthians 12, 31. Now if you remember, the Corinthians were written a letter. Paul wrote them a letter. He didn't break it up into chapter and verses. That was done a couple of centuries ago for our benefit. And it is a great benefit. It helps us find our place in the Bible. But this was a letter. And here are the words that came right after, but covet earnestly the best gifts, and yet I show unto you a more excellent way. 
going into chapter 13, verse 1. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Charity in the New Testament is from the Greek word agape, which is the Greek word for love, specifically the love of God. In fact, the phrase, the love of God, the love of Christ, and other like phrases are used in the New Testament to separate this love as peculiar and available only from God. It's the love that God showed us when he sent Jesus to die. So what's the greatest possession we can gain through obedience to God's word? Is it land? No, it's love. That's the greatest possession. And not only is it love, it's godly love, agape. Now this does not mean, and hear me well, this does not mean that you have to earn the love of God. If you had to earn the love of God, it wouldn't be love. It would be something else. When we believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, then that means we have obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're born again by his spirit at that very time. And the love of God, that agape, is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. Now, does it sound like obedience to, or in this case, belief in, God's Word confines us? Does it sound like it restricts us? We have eternal life. <laughs> That is unrestricted life in Christ. Our new man, that one that is renewed, that one who is inhabited by the Spirit of God never dies, even though the flesh does, the old man. And King Hosea was stiff-necked about this truth. Rather than enjoying the bounty that God gives through belief in his word, obedience to his word, belief for Hosea of that Savior who would one day come and show himself to the world and die for their sins and wrap up all the need for those animal sacrifices and fulfill every single thing the tabernacle represented. Rather than his mind being there, his mind was on, i, I got to keep the enemies away and... Okay, the Assyrians, yes, they're a Gentile enemy nation, but I'll just pay them some money, and they'll take care of all of my enemies for me. Now, a third answer to our question, if I obey God's word, will it confine me or restrict me, is found in Deuteronomy 11 and verse 9, where it says, after verse 8, that ye may prolong your days in the land which the Lord swear unto your fathers to give unto them and to their seed, a land that floweth with milk and honey. For obedience to God's word, Israel was guaranteed this, that their days in that promised land would be prolonged. In other words, God wouldn't just give it to them. God wouldn't just take them there, but he would let them stay there. 
They would stay in that promised land. They would live there as long as they obeyed God's word. That was the deal for Adam and Eve too, wasn't it? They could stay in that garden as long as they obeyed God's word. But they sinned. And God said, out you go. He blocked the door. And boy, we've lived with the consequences ever since. So obedience to God's word did not restrict the length of time Israel could remain in the promised land. It extended it. Does that sound confining or restricting? In fact, if you notice in that particular phrase, that ye may prolong your days in the land, in the land. So it wasn't just that their days were prolonged. It was that their days in the land were prolonged. Now you remember that Exodus, the Exodus from Egypt, that is, God delivering the children of Israel from the bondage of Egypt, taking them through the, the wilderness, across the Red Sea, on dry ground, destroying the Egyptian army behind them, that that is a picture of our deliverance from the bondage of sin. The promised land, that land flowing with milk and honey, pictures the rest that we have in Christ. And writing about the children of Israel in the wilderness, the writer of Hebrews 3.18 said this. 3.18, Hebrews 3.18. Speaking of God, and to whom swear he, God, that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believe not. The only ones who couldn't enter into his rest were the unbelievers. That's why he destroyed all of them in the, the wilderness. Now, when a Christian disobeys God's word, he or she does not lose his position in Christ. We know that. We're in Christ. We're sealed. But what he loses is peace of mind. He loses the contentment that comes with fellowship and a close walk with God through his word. And by moving himself out from under God's word, what does he also forfeit? God's protection. God said, you stay right here. I've got you covered. You do what I said, I've got you covered. You move out here, you, you look at my word and say, nah, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do something else. Then you forfeit that protection, but you don't forfeit your position in Christ. That never happens. And when that person does that, when that Christian does that, his life is a mess, isn't it? That's what Esther told Sarah one day. She said, your hair is a mess. <laughs> and she's right. <laughs> I think she may have been goaded into saying that to her. But your life is a mess when you're out from under God's word. It's, it's full of anxiety. It's full of stress. And then, of course, the earthly consequences that follow that carnal behavior. You can't avoid them. And such a person doesn't avail himself of the benefits that come with the rest that God has given to him in Christ. I like that piece. I was on my back porch this morning just enjoying the 
relatively cool of the morning. It's not cold. And I've got a hummingbird feeder right above me. And for the first time, I had a little hummingbird come there and feast and feast within about six or seven feet of me. They usually won't do that if I'm on the porch. And I sent that to Brother Fulton and said, look at my little visitor. I just love those birds. And he said the same thing I thought. He said, how peaceful. And it is. It's peaceful to be out in my backyard and all the, the garden, the plants and the birds and the squirrels and all of those little critters. But you know what? That's all going to go away one day, isn't it? That's not where I get my peace. It is peaceful, and it makes me thank God. And just looking at that little hummingbird and knowing a little more about him than I used to, I marvel at how God puts together such a little creature like that and how they already know what to do when they're born or when they're hatched. Remember the first question we sought to answer was one that King Hosea must have considered in some form or fashion, if I obey God's word, will it confine me or restrict me? We know he had access to God's word. We know he had access to the writings of the prophets and the law of Moses. He had all of that. He knew enough about the tabernacle, about the altar, to know where things were supposed to be. And when he was moving something out of place... He knew enough he was disobedient. And we saw that the answer to that question is no. It's a resounding no. If I obey God's word, it does not confine or restrict me. It liberates me. It grants, it opens the gate for the possessions God's given me. It makes me strong. It prolongs my days in the land. Now let's look at Hosea's dilemma from another angle by asking this second question. If I disregard God's word, won't I be free and unrestricted? You see, that's what the worldly person says is, Oh, you Christians, y'all have to obey all those rules. I don't want anything to do with that. I want to live my own life, go my own way. Genesis chapter 3, verses 3 through 5. Because what we've seen so far is that what Hosea thought would free him, actually bound him, because Samaria was besieged by Assyria. And the word besieged is confined to be bound. So let's expound upon this a little more. Genesis 3, verses 3 through 5. But the, of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. Now this is Eve speaking. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Now in this conversation with the serpent, Eve conveyed to him that disobeying God's word is what would confine her and restrict her. Because she would rather live than die. And to die is to be restricted, isn't it? But Satan told her that's not true. 
He said, you're not going to die. And see, that's what Eve's fear was, is as she told Satan through the serpent, if I eat of this, I'm going to die. God said, we're going to die. And so what's the first thing that Satan did? If we look at it this way, he took that restriction away. He suggested that it be taken away. He said, no, 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 no. No, you've got it all wrong. You're not going to die. You're not going to be restricted. You're not going to be confined if you disobey God's word. That's what he's telling her. And he successfully convinced her that disobeying God's word would not restrict or confine her. But that she would actually profit greatly. Her coast would be enlarged by having her eyes open to know good and evil. Have you ever considered how slick this serpent was? <laughs> I don't mean just his skin. It's not hard to convince Eve or me that knowing good is a plus. We all want to know good. But for the serpent to convince Eve that it was a plus to know evil is on another level. How could that be good? I don't like evil. I don't like seeing evil, but I see it every day, both at my work, in traffic, at the grocery store. I don't like evil thoughts, but they come into my mind daily just like they do in yours. And I look forward to the day when I will no longer know evil. And that day is spoken of in Revelation chapter 21 verse 27 where it says this about where we will be. And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. No evil's going to be there. So learn this well. Even though logic tells you that knowing evil is a bad thing, Satan can convince you it's a good thing. Even though logic tells you that knowing evil is a bad thing, Satan can convince you that it's a good thing. And I say logic because there are unbelievers. There are people who don't believe in God whatsoever, or they say they don't. And they don't like to see evil, many of them, what they think is evil. They don't want to see someone harmed or something stolen or something burned down that's precious to another person. They go by logic. And I want you to know that you have no hope of defeating Satan on your own because you'll fail. And I wonder if Hosea would have admitted that logically disobeying God's word had a negative effect on Israel and Judah throughout her history. He had the records of it. He knew, and I'm sure he read these, but he knew that under this king... All Israel sinned after the manner of that king, and God delivered them into the hands of whichever enemy. He had to have seen that. 
So logically, he knew that to know evil was not a good thing. And yet he chose to know evil. That's how powerful Satan is. He did that to Eve. We saw, we listened as it were. We saw the words with our very own eyes. How he turned her perception of God's of obeying God's word completely upside down. To where she believed him and not God. Eve learned the hard way that disobeying God would not make her free. What did it do? It confined her. It bound her up. She was besieged. That's the word we're still looking at. She was besieged by sin and death, just like Samaria was besieged by the Assyrians. Now look back in your text in verse 6, 2 Kings 17, verse 6. In the sixth year, or excuse me, in the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria took Samaria and carried Israel away into Assyria and placed them in Halat and in Habor by the river of Gozan and in the cities of the Medes. Before Samaria was besieged by Assyria, but in this verse, Israel, which means the people, was carried away by Assyria. They had been besieged, and now they've been carried away. They were Assyria's captives when they were in Samaria. Now they're Assyria's captives in Assyria. And this brings us to a great spiritual truth. Yes, another one. They're all through the Bible, aren't they? The Bible's full of them. In fact, the Bible's the only place where you'll find spiritual truth. So if you happen to be looking for it somewhere else, stop. Stop doing that. And the reason Samaria was, was surrounded or besieged by Assyria was sin. And the life of a person is like this as well. We're born from parents who are sinners all the way back to Adam and Eve. And just like every person who's born of man and woman, meaning we are accepting Jesus Christ, who was born only of woman but not of the seed of man. Every, As Job said, man that is born of woman is of few days and full of trouble. And just like that, we are besieged by sin and its consequences. It's got us surrounded. And the prince of this world, Satan, has dominion over us because our father in, in the flesh, Adam, and Eve gave him dominion over us. In fact, Adam gave dominion of his family over to his wife when he disobeyed God. He did what she did, listened to what she said instead of what God said. So there was that. But in their sin, the dominion God gave them over this earth, over all of his creation... They said, here you go, Satan. We'll trade that for a bite of the fruit just like Esau traded his birthright for a bowl of pottage. In Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 8, Isaiah said this to the people of Judah, And the daughter of Zion is left as a cottage in a vineyard, as a lodge in a garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city. So Israel was besieged like a city because of her sin. 
And then if you go down to verses 16 through 18, and we'll have to close here. This is Isaiah 1, verses 16 through 18. It has the answer for that besieged city and the hope for its people. Wash you, make you clean, put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do well. Seek judgment, relieve the oppressed, judge the fatherless, plead for the widow. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. That besieged city had one hope, that their sins would be washed white as snow. And we'll look at that and the fulfillment of that promise as this all ties to Hosea in his sorry condition. We'll look at it next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that we can rely upon the truth of your word and we don't have to go looking or wondering after other sources of information because everything we need is right here. And I pray that as we study, we would commit these things to memory, commit them into our hearts, and by your strength and by your grace, live by them until Jesus comes. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.